0: Our scripture reading today is from Revelation, chapters 1 and 4. Blessed is he, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. At the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, so good to be here with you today, man. John said I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. We got to that third song, and I was going, "Me too, me too." I'm still kind of kind of trembling. It's not for being on stage. I like I like to be with with you, but man, that was uh, that was quite a time in the Lord's presence. I'm, I don't know if I actually want to recover from it. So we'll just try to stay in it. Amen. Um, my name is Nathan Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. I've uh, been a part of the church about 13 years, been on staff for a little over three, and I'm just real glad to be here. We love this place, man. It's our family. It's our, it's our lifeblood in many ways. It's our community, and uh, I love serving here. Um, do a number of things, but of course, love to get the chance to give God's word. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Pastor Morgan is, as Barnabas mentioned, in San Marcus, our sister church and. We're going to be doing things a little more closely with them in the future. You'll, I'm sure, hear more about some of that as the days go on. But um, another great church down there that we're happy to, to partner with. Today we're going to continue our series out of Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> uh, and as you heard, um, just a couple verses there from chapter 1 that we wanted to just remember and have in the front of our head as we get into this. The first thing is that this is the only book that promises a blessing just for reading it or hearing it. So you just got your blessing. You might not have known that you were going to get your blessing that early. It just happened. You just heard the word from the book of Revelation. The Bible says you will get your blessing for it. The number two reason that we started in chapter one is that before we get into what John saw, I think it's good that we remember where John was. Where John was. See, John had been serving as a leader at the church of Ephesus. He was an ap- apostle at large, if you will, in the early days of the church. And then somewhere when this guy was like about 75 to 90 years old, he was arrested in Roman persecution efforts. And the first thing they tried to do to him, you don't want to sign up for this, they tried to boil him alive in a pot of oil. Boil him alive. They tried to, to kill him, but it didn't work. So then they sent him to this beautiful, remote Greek island called Patmos. Sounds like a dream honeymoon vacation, right? Wrong. Not so much. See, this place was a a rugged, rocky, brutal location where the Romans would send criminals to serve out their sentences. And while they were there, you know, to pass the time, they had to work in the mines. John's an old man. He hadn't spent five seconds in air conditioning. They didn't have it yet. He hadn't spent his life sitting in Starbucks reading books like we do. This guy had had lived his whole life already in in the conditions of the ancient world, and now here he is as an old man having to work mines on the middle of an island in the middle of nowhere. It's a bad situation. But here's the truth of it. They tried to kill him, but God saved him. They tried to cut him off from the entire world, but he ended up writing what would become five books of the New Testament, the number one all-time bestseller. John's all over it, even though they tried to put him in seclusion. See, he's in this place where they thought nobody could find him, but guess who found him? Jesus found him. And he came to John and he said, John, don't let all of this crush you. Don't let all of this st- stop you. I'm not going to let this kill you because I've still got something for you, John. But here's what I need you to do. I need you, I need you to look up. See, John found himself in a place of exile. But what Jesus gave him and this the title of the message today was Access in Exile. Access in Exile. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at it from three angles. We're going to look where do we find this access. Number two, we'll look at what the access reveals. And finally, we'll talk a bit about what the access produces. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this and I understand where John was, and then I see that Jesus showed up in the midst of his own living hell, that right there is a good enough gospel message for me. I hear that and think Jesus showed up there. He kept him from dying. He kept him from isolation. Man, that's good news. We start to see wherever we are, whatever we're going through, no matter how hard and confusing the situation may be. Hebrews tells us we got the same thing John got. The veil between heaven and earth was torn. Access was made to the throne room of heaven by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So now we can go to that same throne room 24/7 365 we have access we have access he's always available and that by itself is good news but i want to talk about the access for just a few minutes i don't know what your prayer life is like but in my prayer life sometimes i feel like i'm like fighting to get god's attention the problem is is that's not the real issue the issue for me And the issue for you, I'm just here to tell you, it ain't, is God paying attention to me? The issue is, am I paying attention to God? Am I paying attention to him? That's the real question. Does God have my attention on the things he wants it on, in the places that he wants it? Has has he gotten into the depths of my heart and said, I need that piece of it too? That's what we're after. That's what God's after. Believe me, he's listening. Are you listening? You see, John was paying attention. John was paying attention. And so because of that, he looked up and he saw a door. Now let's talk about the door for a second. Where was the door? I just told you it was was up. All right, three of y'all had your coffee this morning. That's good. You, You can participate a little bit. John looked up and he saw the door. It doesn't say the door was behind him. It doesn't say the door was under him. The door was up. And sometimes we don't get the access we need because we're too busy like this. and yeah, look at that. That's a painful memory. That's a hurtful place. We're busy looking back. Maybe there are some things in your past that happened to you that weren't fair, that weren't right. Maybe there were some missed opportunities. Maybe you got a long list. You, you keep it on your computer of all the woulda, coulda, shouldas. I don't know. We have these lists. But if you woke up this morning and you drug yourself to church... I'm here to tell you that God hasn't forgotten about you, and your best days aren't behind you. God's not finished with you yet. See, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. The most intimate times you've had with them, they're not the ones behind. They can be in front. Those seasons that you walk through of ups and downs, guess what? There's another up coming because you got up today. God got up. He has access available for you. But you'll never walk through the door that's up above if you're busy looking at everything that's behind now, it's easy to look back. It's natural to look back. You know why? What's behind us is what we're most familiar with. We understand the past. Hindsight's twenty-twenty, right? That's where all of our time is invested. You haven't invested in the next second in your life because it hadn't got here yet. You've invested in that, so it's easy to look back. But I'm trying to tell you what God has for you isn't found by looking backwards, It's found by looking up. Now, looking up doesn't come natural. It just doesn't. It's easy to look backwards. But to look up takes intention. We have to be intentional to look up. And usually, for most people, we only look up when something gets our attention. Right? It's not natural to walk around like this. I mean, some people do. And they talk to themselves. And we'll look at them and think they are, somebody said it. I think they're crazy, but the the truth is, they might be looking into heaven. They might be speaking in the spirit, and God might be showing them some things that he hadn't trusted you or me with yet, because we're busy like this. Looking up doesn't come natural. But John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day in a voice like a trumpet said, look up. I've got something for you. And he did. Jesus is trying to train us to look up. Now, here's something else about looking up. I've got a background in insurance, more specifically in construction, estimating. So I've been in thousands of homes and buildings and I've been trained to look up because when you when you walk in, you're usually there because there's something wrong. with There's water damage in the ceiling. I worked hailstorms, hurricanes, uh, tons of them. And so when you go in, you're there because somebody's roof failed and now they got a problem inside their house. So you just walk in and look up. And so that's natural for me now. When I walk into a room, I just look up. I see what's on the ceiling before I see what's on the wall. It's kind of weird, I know, but I'm just trained that way. But here's what what has also happened. I've been in countless other homes... And I wasn't on the job. I just go over to see a friend and I walk in and I do this. I walk in. I've seen it in this building before. I just walk in and do this. I'm that crazy guy. I just walk in and look up. But because I've been trained to look up, I've seen things on people's ceilings that they didn't see. They had a problem, but they couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have access to the information. It hadn't gotten their attention. It was right there the whole time. Their own ceiling, their own house, but they didn't see it because they weren't trained to look up. You know, a lot of Christians are like this too. People tell us in sermons like this, hey, you got to look up every once in a while. But if we don't develop the habit of it, then we just walk around staring at the things that are on on the ground right in front of us. Because, you know, it's easy sometimes when we trip over the same things over and over again. And we say, gosh, I wish I'd stop tripping over that. I wish I'd stop falling down. I, I, I know i got to get back up. But I guess the only way that I'm going to stop tripping over this thing right in front of me is if I just keep my eyes like this. And God's saying, stop it. Stop looking at what the devil's trying to do and look at what I'm trying to do. He says, look up. I've got something to show you. And by the way, if you don't look up, you might miss the context in which that thing you keep tripping over fits into the plan that he has for your life. I'm all for looking forward. I'm all for knowing what's in front of me. But I want to know what heaven has for me. Otherwise, the rest of it will never make sense. And maybe that's the whole reason that God brought you here today. So he could just tell you, I need your attention. Hello, hello. Heaven is calling. Are you listening? I need your attention. Maybe that's why you're in the building today. And this is why attention is so important. Listen to me closely. You might want to write this one down. Attention is the key to access. You have to recognize that if you want access to heaven, you've got to allow heaven to get your attention. But it's not just heaven that we're talking about. Anything that has your attention also has access to you. And so maybe you're like me and sometimes you start thinking, man, I wonder why I'm not experiencing the presence of God in my life. You think that it's an access problem. But really it's an attention problem. I mean, just stop and think about it. Last week, the last month, the last year, Just take a moment to think about, man, what's had your attention? I actually want you to think about it. Here comes awkward silence. What has had your attention? Maybe it's some dumb stuff that you did. That stuff gets my attention sometimes. Man, I can't believe I did that. Maybe it's something that someone said to you. The power of a word. Someone said something about you or to you. You're stuck on it. And I think, I think what Jesus wants to tell us is that if you'll turn your attention from them, I can give you breakthrough from them. Do you see? When we're busy looking back, when we're busy looking down, what we're also communicating to ourselves, whether we know it or not, is that I got a problem that I need to fix. And He's saying, get your attention off of that stuff and get it onto me so I can do something about the stuff you can't fix anyway. That's what Jesus wants. For John to see what he saw, he first had to look up. He looked up, heaven got his attention, that attention created access. And now I want to talk about for a moment what that access reveals. See, John walked through this portal into heaven. Says he walked through the door and he saw a world that would make the biggest Marvel nerd blown away. Seriously, Kevin Fagg, you got nothing on heaven. Can't do it. John walks right into the most important room in all of heaven and earth, in every dimension of time and space. This throne room is so powerful they wouldn't even have a second thought of using the resolute desk as a TV tray. You know what I'm saying? There's actual power in this place, and it's so big it's so majestic. John had a hard time comprehending what he was seeing, and that's why he said, "I heard a voice like a trumpet. He didn't say he heard a voice of a trumpet. He said, I heard a voice like a trumpet. He he didn't even know how to describe what he was saying. You ever been to a football game? 100,000 people cheering, shouting, going crazy. And then you you, you could ask somebody, hey, man, use your voice and just project it. They'll hear you across the way. Nobody's ever going to hear your voice. But somebody breaks out a trumpet, you can hear it. John said, I heard a voice that got my attention in the midst of 100,000 screaming people. I still heard it. It's like a trumpet. It called him up. Then he starts trying to describe what he saw. You just heard it. We're going to walk through it again. What John saw was the one sitting on the throne. And when he tried to tell us what that one looked like, he said they looked like stones of jasper and carnelian. These stones at that time were beautiful and costly, but what you may not also know is that these are the two stones that Moses used to describe the first and last tribes of Israel. John's trying to tell us the one seated on the throne, he's the beginning and end of everything. He's the first and the last. He's the only complete thing. That's what he's trying to tell us about those weird stones. You always wonder what that meant. Now you know. It's complete. This one is complete. And then he sees a rainbow goes all around the throne. The rainbow represents God's brilliance and His eternal faithfulness and the covenant of grace that's continually available for all who would approach the throne. And then around the throne, that big T throne, there's 24 elders sitting on 24 little T thrones. And those elders have crowns of gold, which represent dignity and robes of white, which represent purity because the blood of Christ had cleansed them and washed them of their sins and they had overcome. So they're clothed in white and then coming out of the throne is flashes of lightning in both rumbles and peals of thunder. You know, that, that, that peal of thunder, that's like the big crack you hear when you're right up close to it. And the far off rumble lets you know that something big is coming. All over scripture, God uses lightning and thunder in moments of great significance and also in moments of impending judgment. It's as if this lightning and thunder is trying to tell us that the power of God, the righteousness of God, and yes, the judgment of God, it's, it's here now. And it's still on its way. And then John starts to talk to us about these seven torches of fire which represent the totality of the Holy Spirit of God. And even though the Holy Spirit of God has many different attributes, all the torches are on fire. Representing the most true thing about God and that's that he's holy and pure. No matter what you or me may want God to be, if we don't want his holiness, it's not him we want. Now, front of this throne is a sea like glass. He said it's, it's like glass. I don't really know what it is, but it's like gla- glass and, and it's kind of like crystal and it's totally clear. And I think that that represents the total clarity with which God looks down on His creation. His perspective is perfect. There's no cloudy waters before the throne. God's not confused, He's not a God of confusion. You can't trick him or fool him. You can't hide anything from him. He sees all things perfectly. Nothing is hidden from him. He's got the vantage point, by the way, though, to see everything happening in this world and everything happening in your life, and that should both comfort you and terrify you at the same time. He's seen your worst, but he's also seen what's been done to you. What this sea of glass means is that when he looks down, there's no tear you've cried that didn't catch his eye. There's no wrong that's been done that escaped his view. And when he sees the wrongs that humanity inflicts on itself, and he sees the injustice and the wickedness, that thunder, thunder starts to rumble. And he's letting us know that a day's coming when he's going to set all things that were wrong right. Let that thunder speak to you. It should comfort you and terrify you. If it doesn't, you're still not getting it yet. Now on each side of the throne are these four crazy looking living creatures. The Bible says they have four different faces. They all have six wings. And then they're full of eyes all over the place, inside and out, which I think represents their ability to see God for who He really is. And then one day these creatures sitting around and they said, man, we should say something about this, this, this one next to us. And so they, they started to sing and they said, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And one of them said, no, no, that's not good. You got to say, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Cause just one holy didn't quite get you there. And, and another one, Said, oh, yeah, let's try that. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and they did that for like five thousand years. And then one said, I don't think we got it quite there yet. Let's say it three times. Let's say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then they said, I think we got it right. So they started singing it, and now they can't stop it because once you start that song, it never quits. They're still singing it today because that's what God is. That's what this whole scene is trying to tell us. He's complete. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He knows everything, and. He's perfectly holy. Now sometimes we look at God from our vantage point, from our kind of like selfish disposition, how we wish things were, and we start singing songs like accommodating, accommodating, accommodating <laughs> is the Lord God who shows up sometimes. He comes through for me occasionally, and he's cool if I do whatever I want. But that's not what the creatures closest to him have to say. The ones that are right next to him, he let them stand right next to him. He put all those crazy eyes in them so they could testify the truth about him when they sing night and day, never ceasing. The most true thing there is about God, that he is holy, holy, holy. Saying it once ain't enough. Saying it twice ain't enough. He is the holy, holy, holy God. He is the one and only Lord God Almighty who was and is, and don't miss this one, who is to come. Who is to come. That's more good news. Do you know why? That voice like a trumpet said, come up here and I'm going to show you what's going to take place after this. See, he's not just the one that was. God doesn't just have perfect hindsight. He's not just the one that is, that has perfect insight. But he's the one that is to come. He has perfect foresight. And this means that there's no, well, just live and let live and we'll see what happens. The future's unknowable, just walk it out. God says, let me show you what must happen after this. After everything is said and done. After humanity has ceased with their pettiness and ceased with their wickedness and ceased with their ugliness and ceased from pretending they have power. When it's all said and done, I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to be on the throne. I'm still going to be holy. I'm still going to be powerful. I'm still going to be the God who was. I'm still going to be the God who is right now and I'll always be the God who is to come because the future doesn't exist without me. I'm not going anywhere. No one can knock me off my throne. No one can make me quit. No one's going to get the best of me. I know the future because I wrote the future and you and me should take heart in that today because no matter what we're facing, he's in it. God's going to win in the end. Heard a seminary professor say this one time. What's the book of Revelation about? Evil's really bad. God's bigger and God's going to win. It's the whole book right there. Here's the good news. If we stay with him, if we keep believing in him, if we hold fast to the assurance of faith that we have in his finished work, so will we. We will win in the end. It's good news. So I'm telling you today, like Jesus told John, if you don't look up, Come on. Look up. Walk through the door. See the access of what God has for you because you need it and I need it. We'll see what the access reveals. God's good. God's big. God never loses. And that's who he is. And that kind of knowledge, it should actually produce something in us. See, when we see God rightly, it is not a calm and pleasant observation. Well, that's very interesting. That's neat. There's rainbows and creatures with eyes and they say stuff, and there's elders. I'm not sure who those are. It's a sea of crystal. I thought I saw one of those before, but maybe it was different than what you just described. When we see all of this, it should be more than an observation. It should be an inspiration to become something different. This is the third point today, what the access produces. In short, let me tell you, this is what the access produces. The access produces a people, stay with me, who are from the future. Not that, who did that? Not that future, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. The Bible tells us that we're actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're citizens from the kingdom of heaven. There you are, citizenship is in heaven. Though we're in this world, we're not of this world. And if you are part of the body of Christ, listen, you're quite literally from the future. It may sound like science fiction, but it's an absolute theological fact. You are from the future, I am from the future. This is part of what it means to be born again. So you're first born into this present world, the world that is. But then we get born again. And we're born into the world that is to come. The kingdom of God is something that is both now and not yet. In many ways, the future is yet to come. But in another very real sense. The kingdom is here and now, and I don't know if you know this or not, but it's your job and it's my job. It's our job to bring that not, that not yet into the now. That's why we're here. That's what we do. When we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear, that's what we're talking about. You know, the Pharisees used to question Jesus all the time. Where's this coming kingdom? He said, it's already here. You just can't see it. So we pray for eyes and ears so that we can see and hear from that future. Jesus will give us us that. That's what Paul means here in 2 Corinthians when he says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and all things have become new. It means that through faith and baptism we can leave the present age that's still dominated by sin and death and step into an age where Jesus is actually Lord, where he's all about the business of restoring all things. This is what it actually means to be a believer. Did you know that? Being a believer means that you believe in something you haven't fully seen yet. And you anticipate the age that is to come by living in it right now. This is what access to the throne room should produce in us. Should produce in us a people who live like today, like we are from the age that is to come. Because we've been born into that kingdom. That's what it means to live by faith. Paul says it like this in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while waiting for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A pastor by the name of Brian Zahn, I think he captures it beautifully in his book called Beauty Will Save the World. He says this. In the twilight of the age of sin and death. How many are glad to know it's in the twilight? The twilight of the age of sin and death. We are to cast off the works of sin and death and manifest the works of restoration and new creation that belongs to the age to come. As the old age characterized by rebellion to God passes away, we are to anticipate the age to come by living lives of radical obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ here and now. It's in this way that we're a prophetic people. We're not a prophetic people by acting like a band of psychics making predictions about future events that belong to this age. We're a prophetic people when we bear witness, prophetic witness, to the age to come by living in it here and now. Man, I love that. We're not called to be prophetic. Let me just do away with a few things here. I don't believe we're called to be prophetic by trying to use the book of Revelation to assign a beast to a president, no matter how easy and tempting many of them have made that for us. We're not a prophetic people by trying to predict when Jesus is going to return. The Bible says nobody knows. Stop listening to those crazy people. Nobody knows. Jesus doesn't even know. When the Father tells him to go, then it'll be over and everyone will know. That's all you need to know. We're not supposed to use the Bible to try to predict when Armageddon's coming or which new biometric access information piece is the mark of the beast. I, I, don't, I don't know about those things, but what I do know is that we're called to be a prophetic people who live from the future in the here and now to demonstrate what that kingdom's about in the middle of this one. That's what I do know about being a prophetic people. We're supposed to be people who live for what is to come, who tell people where this all is headed, who can give truth to what the future holds and invite the world to come along with us. This is what the access to heaven should produce in us. I've talked about this before. I'll say it again. Jesus did not come and die just to save you from hell. He didn't. Being a follower of Christ may start with a desperate, faith-filled prayer, but let me just let you in on something. Being a follower of Jesus is not saying a come-into-my-heart incantation in a nice, calm moment and then just moving on as if nothing ever happened. That is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus means that you live as a prophetic witness from the future who demonstrates the future now. That's what it means. That's what preaching the gospel is all about. I'm not making this stuff up. In the book of Acts, there's like 10 to 11 sermons depending on what you count of sermon. And I have something to tell you about every single one of them. Not a single sermon in the book of Acts. Go fact check me if you like. It'll be a great Bible study for you. Not a single sermon in the book of Acts centers around the idea of escaping hell. They don't. This is the documentation of how the church began and not a single sermon focuses that as the center of the proclamation. What they are centered on is a proclamation that the world has a new king. The world has a new Lord. That king, he has a name. His name is Jesus. By the way, you tried to kill him, but God raised him from the dead. And everyone who confesses and believes this proclamation, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can escape hell, but you will also be empowered to live in the light of this new proclamation so that your life begins to look like his, begins to look like the future, and now you are a walking preview of a movie that is the future. And one of the best examples I've heard that kind of explains that—it's hindsight's twenty-twenty, right? Always easier to look back. So let's just hypothetically look back for a second. Let's take a look back at something that was once inexplicably a controversial issue. I know when something seems so controversial, it's hard to imagine a day when it won't be, but those days come because in America and in the American church, there was a time when slavery was controversial. Now today, almost no one would say that slavery is compatible with Christian ethics or would attempt to justify slavery in a Christian context. But believe it or not, and I wish I had two more hours to educate on this, it was a controversy. This clear thinking that we, th- we have now about that issue wasn't always the case. For generations, church-going, self-proclaimed Christians in America, justified the practice of slavery through their Christian faith. Now, here's the hypothetical. If you could get in your own DeLorean and cruise back to my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, I don't know, maybe like 1830, and try to convince them to change their position on slavery, how would you do it? What would you say? I would think that you would want to tell them about the future. I would think that you would want to be prophetic. You'd want to tell them about a proclamation that was going to come. You'd want to tell them about a a war. They can't get their ideas around. They can't grasp how deadly and horrendous and bloody it would be. They didn't grasp all of that, but you could tell them with clarity what's coming. You might want to tell them the future doesn't belong to you. Slavery has no future. And if they continue to align themselves with that which is destined to be abolished, all the future will hold them in contempt. Now if they said to you, brother, brother, I don't know if slavery is okay or not, but if it's bad, it'll change when Jesus comes back. You could tell them they're wrong. You could tell them the future is upon them and they must change now. If you could travel back and preach this message, you'd essentially be preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you did all of that, you'd be lucky to get out alive. Now telling this hypothetical story reminds me of a true story. There's a Christian missionary by the name of E. Stanley Jones. He wrote a book the year he died called The Unshakable Kingdom and The Unchanging Person. And in this story, he recalls Another story, he says this. When I was 18, this was in 1902, he was 18. 1902, when I was 18, a year after my conversion, I was seated in a streetcar in a southern city with a very dignified and greatly beloved teacher, Miss Nellie Logan. Now, Mr. Uh, Stanley Jones was a white guy. He's sitting there with this teacher when an African American woman got into the car. He says this, instinctively I arose and lifted my hat and offered her my seat. My teacher friend blushed and a titter went through the streetcar. That just wasn't done at that time. But I was taking off my hat to the future and greeting it from afar. 68 years before it happened, I was already in the kingdom of the future. How about that? What I'm trying to paint for you today is a picture of what it means to be a prophetic witness. Like Mr. E. Stanley Jones. Because maybe there are things you're called to tip your hat to that are coming. Maybe there's something you're called to speak out about prophetically today, even if it cuts completely against the culture that we live in. Being a prophetic witness can be wildly unpopular. Being prophetic can cost you the world. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about all that. You can gain all of that and still lose your very soul. Prophetic people don't count worldly gains. They count eternal ones. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that people who are prophetic don't want to make gains in the here and now. They definitely do. Don't put off for what happens when Jesus comes back. But here's the thing about prophetic people. They want to count up, store up gains today that make today look more like tomorrow. This is the access we have. We are a people who are exiled in a world. That we are in, but not of. As Christians, we have to get that. We are in the world, but not of it. If we miss that, I'm telling you, we will miss everything it means to follow Jesus. Yet in that place of exile, we, like John, still have access. We have access to a throne room that reminds us of the power and perfection and holiness of God. We have access to the Holy Spirit who imparts in us the power to be a people from the future living in the now. And that access should produce a people who are faithful witnesses of the kingdom that's coming. A people who are marked by holiness. And when I say holiness, I don't just mean like religious moralism. But holiness as otherness. Holy means other. It means set apart. We're to be a people from another place, from another time. And when we realize that we are those others, that we're not from here, We can be a people who love freely, who give freely, who live lives with eternity in mind, who are less protective and possessive of all that's rightfully mine, but a people who freely give because everything they have of eternal value was freely given to them, freely given to me, freely given to you, freely given to us. That's what the kingdom is about. That's what the future is about, and that's what the access to all that should produce in us today. My hope for you today is that when you leave into this world that's full and fraught of problems, you'll no longer be a people who just hopelessly lament all the time about how big the problems are. But you'll be a people who will look at those big problems and say, hey, problem, let me tell you something. You might be big, but my God is bigger. So stop going and telling your problems how big they are and start telling your problems how big your God is. Because that's what it means to be a person from the future. Once you gain the access, what you see what it reveals, it'll produce in you a faith like maybe you've never seen or experienced. I've seen it. I've seen him in his glory. I've seen the coming king because I've seen him heal my body of things that shouldn't have been healed. I've seen him save my son when his life should have been over. I've seen him do things that I can't explain, that science can't explain. I've seen it. You can't make me doubt him. I know too much about him. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. That's the God that I know. That's the God that I serve, and that's the God that loves each and every one of you. We're going to pray here in just a moment. If you want to be a person from the future, I want to pray for you today that you'll receive what you need today for tomorrow. There may be some of you here today that say, I recognize this coming king, and I want to make him... The actual Lord of my life. Maybe you said that prayer, but it was more like an incantation. And you walked on calmly as if it never happened. And now you're back again in church, going, man, how did I get back here? Maybe you're someone who needs to repent because you're here. And Jesus has been asking you for weeks, months, years to come here. If that's you, I want to pray for you today. Pray for the reality of heaven to invade your heart. We're going to sing a song in a moment about the throne room. And as I pray, I'll be praying that God will give you a glimpse of it, and that that glimpse will change your life forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, the one seated on the throne. We cry out to you now and say that we need you. We're a people desperate for you. We've seen the world that you've made and it's amazing. But we want to see the world that is to come. God, would you show us the future? Would you give us a glimpse of the place where you live? Or would you let heaven invade our hearts and change us today so that tomorrow we won't be the same? God, would you give us a heart to invite people along with us on this journey that leads to forever? Because Lord, I hear the the thunder rumbling and I know the day is coming. History will draw to a close and there'll only be those who are with you and those who are not. And in that moment, all that's gonna matter is you. So I pray now by the spirit of God, if there's a heart far from you that you would pull on the string. Lord, if there's a mind that's wandering that you would get its attention. Lord, if there's a life that you designed for something great, who's in the middle of selfish, sinful squalor, that you would bring conviction like only you can. But Lord, we thank you that your grace brings both terror and encouragement. So would you encourage us today by your spirit, but would you not let us leave the same? Let's sing about this throne room. Let's go to it. Pray that God will show it to you.